Welcome to the Byron Dragway Podcast. My name is Randy Simpson. This episode is brought to you by The Hot Rod Shop. The best place to get the best parts for drag cars, street machines, and muscle cars is The Hot Rod Shop in Rockford. From nitrous kits and refills to tire mounting and balancing, they sell all major brands of speed equipment with fast delivery from several regional warehouses. The Hot Rod Shop is located only 20 minutes away from Byron Dragway at 4425 Charles Street in Rockford, Illinois. Look them up on Facebook or call 815-227-5424. In this episode, we get to know Lee Bardo. Lee holds the distinction of having been a racer at Byron Dragway for longer than anyone. Lee raced at Byron Dragway's grand opening on July 4, 1964. Lee and his trademark 57 Chevy, which was also at opening day, are an inseparable pair, having most recently raced at Byron Dragway at the Glory Days Vintage Drag Race in 2019, and they are already on the entry list for the 2020 edition of Glory Days. Lee has many stories about what drag racing was like while the sport was still in its infancy, and he also recalls racing at a variety of other racetracks from the past, including the infamous indoor drag races at the Chicago Amphitheater. But first, a couple of quick announcements. Byron Dragway will be at the Race and Performance Expo February 22nd through the 23rd at the Renaissance Convention Center in Schaumburg, Illinois. Come see us and all the vendors on display. Visit RacePerformanceExpo.com. RacePerformanceExpo.com. The Byron Dragway Night of Champions Dinner and Awards Banquet is on Saturday, March 7th at the Radisson Hotel and Conference Center in Rockford. For more information and to RSVP, go to byrondragway.com banquet. And don't forget to mention Byron Dragway for a special discounted room rate if you're staying the night. And now let's hear from our featured guest, Lee Bardo. Lee, welcome to the Byron Dragway podcast today. Thank you, Randy. Lee, we've already given you an introduction, but we're going to kind of set the stage here and paint a picture. We're going to travel back in time to a date, July 4th, 1964. And we've done the map. That was 55 years, 7 months, and 10 days ago. And uh, most people can't remember 10 days ago, let alone 55 years, 7 months, and 10 days ago. But, Lee, you were at opening day of Byron Dragway, and we're going back a long ways here, Lee, but what do you remember from opening day or from really just the onset and early days of Byron Dragway? Really, Randy, I, like I was talking to a lot of guys around here that are still living, I, we couldn't remember much other than just going there and racing. We brought the cars up there. We drove them to the track. Um, I don't believe anybody that I knew flat-toted or, you know, pulled their cars in any way. We always drove them to the track. But opening day, really can't remember. Like I reminisced by talking to a lot of these guys, none of them can remember the opening days, you know, at uh, Byron at all. I'm sorry. Well, and we've got a lot to unpack here, Lee. We've been talking for better part of a week here putting this interview together and we've really got some pretty pretty interesting tidbits so you yourself were racing at opening day july 4th 1964 
as well as the car that you own today, a 57 Chevy, but you weren't racing the car you own today back on opening day. What was the car that you were racing back in 64? A 1961 Buick white convertible red interior. Jerry Hartman of Rock Falls had my 57, the black 57 I have now. He was racing it then. He is now deceased, and I've got most of this information when he was living. So you acquired that car in 1966, is that correct? January 21st, 1966, I bought it. See, you're, you're sharp as a tack here, Lee. Most people wouldn't be able to remember the exact day, let alone all those details. So uh, so you've had that car ever since, and you had it out just as recently as Glory Days Vintage Drag Race back in July of 2019. And this might be a bit of a loaded question here, Lee, but uh, from the 60s to 2019 and 2020, in your opinion, in drag racing in general, what's changed the most, and what do you think has stayed the same? Okay, I'm going to start one thing. You say, you know, how I can remember. I still have the original bill of sale for my 57. The changes from then to now are just astronomical. Uh, I can't tell you, you know, it's... Before, if, like I said, you know, if someone had some high-performance parts which weren't very much available, other than Chevrolet making, you know, a little more high power, it, it, we raced with what we had, what we could get, what someone had. If we broke down, someone to help us, you know. But the parts were not available as they are nowadays. Now it is all most like electronics. Back then, it was mostly standard transmission cars, and. Yes, there were some automatics, and there were some mechanics that worked on those automatics. But things from then to now are just like night and day. They're just astronomical. It's much more available for high-performance items now than they were back then. Well, you mentioned electronics, Lee, and I'd like you to describe your 57 Chevy in more detail because I want to point out something we've talked about previously is that your car doesn't even have a fuse block in it. So you talk about the electronics of today and then the car that you race still today. Uh, tell us about the car and in what his, uh, I guess, what condition it is in today compared to when you first acquired it. Okay, my car was a 1957 150 series two-door sedan. That's the cheapest model they made. Uh, it had... Only one sun visor, no radio, no clock, no nothing. The car, when Larry Johnson, the original owner, when he bought it, when he was the mechanic at Manning Newberry Chevrolet Cadillac in Clinton, Iowa, had traction bars welded on at Cordova. This is when they did the work at Cordova for traction bars. They're still on the car now. The car is a black lacquer, original paint yet, 283 cubic inch, um, single uh, one distributor, dual point back in the old Corvette, the 891s, uh, fender well headers, um, manual four-speed transmission. We did take out the original 57 rear end and put a 59 Oldsmobile because of the heavier-duty axles and the rear end pinion. 
the car is really nostalgia. I mean, vintage, if you want to call it. It has no electronics. Uh, I do have a recall tack in it and an MSD box for uh, the spark to be. But that's about it. There's nothing special on the car there. It's still back in the in the 57 state. I think the best way to describe it is that is a time capsule on wheels. And it was a, a real pleasure to have it out at Glory Days last year. And I know you're making plans for 2020 this year. And I really want to go back to the, the early 60s. And uh, you are a retired pharmacist, Lee. And we have pharmacists that race at the track. We've got pharmacy techs. We've got people in all kinds of walks of life. Most traditionally, people come from an automotive background. We see a lot of mechanics, a lot of people that come from maybe an engineering background or things of, of, of that nature that have a very direct connection to cars and motorsports. But, you know, we're looking back in the early 60s. This is really ground zero for drag racing. The sport is in its infancy. There really is no blueprint or any history. You guys were the ones making the history that we talk about today. So describe to me the best you can, Lee, how you found hot rodding, drag racing, and really getting involved in this scene. Well, Randy, it's like this. Back then, we had our parents' car, and I used to be able to use the car to go pick my dad up at the drugstore because my family had a drugstore and I used to go up to well six blocks and pick him up and of course you know you spin the tires a little bit and maybe that just got into you know the blood because the speed the fast you know the noise you know that that brought to it okay and it just progressed a little bit because you know well my next car was a 41 Plymouth and it needed work and we had you know couple of guys around we did things and we had what we were at available we you know uh, i i just can't tell you, you know just we had what we could you know we things weren't available there was much we worked with what we had and i don't know it just progressed a little bit you know uh, cars just were one of my interests that you know it was speed it was mainly speed i think that you liked it was fast you know it was quick uh you know that's all I can tell you. And when my 57 came up for sale at one time, no one wanted the car. No one wanted it. It was a 150 series. Uh, it was not the fancy Bel Air. It didn't look good, you know. Um, but I liked it because maybe because it had the fuel injection signs on the back end and the insignia fuel injection. But it was fast. Everybody liked fast cars. Once you got into it, it just grew on you. It just grew on you, you know, and that's uh, that's the way I got to it. And I started working on it a little bit, and you met guys that did it, and you just helped each other out. That's all I can tell you, you know, the way it started, you know, just the speed, I think that was it. In your 57 Chevy, it holds several distinctions, but one of which I found interesting is it is the first known car to be lettered. Now, modern racing, everybody's used to cars being blanketed with stickers or names or car numbers or you know nowadays they go so far as to wrap a vehicle entirely but we're talking about the first car to have lettering actually painted on the car tell us about that lee okay uh larry johnson and his wife bought this car brand new in 1957 larry was a mechanic at uh, manning newberry chevrolet dealer and cadillac dealer in clinton iowa and he bought the car for drag racing 
Uh, first place I think he took it at, too, was uh, Cordova. How it became lettered, I have no idea, but when he, when I tried getting the information on the car, he wouldn't give me it because he was mad because I wouldn't sell him the car when we first started racing it. But his ex-wife got a hold of me, and she told me that she would give me some information on the car, uh, some pictures, and she gave me you know, the idea. It was a winner in 57, 58. The car was the first car to go 100 miles an hour. It was lettered uh, by a man in Clinton, Iowa, which I don't recollect his name, and I'd have to look at it in my book right now. But I did keep a record of the book and all the owners that had it. And it was just a, a cheap car. It had, like uh, you mentioned, Randy, before, it doesn't have a fuse panel in it. There's a one hot wire that comes off the ignition switch, and that's when everything worked off that. It's hard to believe, but that's the way it is. I did have a clutch explosion two weeks before I got married. And we had, to, back then, they didn't have the scatterproof bell housings, <clears throat> and we had to use a piece of steel, half-moon piece on it. Well, it came up through the floorboard. By the way, we did not have the high performance or the expensive and scatterproof flywheels or clutches and pressure plates, and that came up through the floorboard. So I do have a couple of dings in the cowl with the car from that, and the floorboard's been a little bit messed up, and it did do some messing with the wires underneath, but we wired it the best we could to make it what it was before. That's all I can tell you about that as such on there, Randy. I hope that helps you in a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And when we first talked, Lee, we went through, and you kind of rattled off a list of what I would call ghost tracks, drag strips that are no longer, and uh, ones that stood out to me. Everybody's heard of Oswego. Everybody knows about US-30, but there were a few ones that really stuck out to me that I just want to pick your brain on really quickly. Uh, there was a track called Route 88 Drag Strip. In this one, right. I, I knew nothing about, but... Uh, you pointed out one distinct characteristic about that eighth-mile track, and it was the racing surface. And, and tell us a little bit about Route 88 Drag Strip. It was about five miles south of Rock Falls. It was an old, not an old, it was a airport. And its surface was gravel, pea gravel, only eighth-mile long. David Jameson and another man by the name of Green, who was his partner, ran this strip. And they ran usually on Saturday nights. Uh, lights, safety equipment, there was nothing there. There was nothing there. And one thing for sure, if you were racing, you wanted to be the winner because if you were behind, that pea gravel hit your car and just dinged up the paint job and the windshield. But uh, it was an eighth-mile track. It was a, you might say, an, if you want to call it now, an outlaw track. Well, you would know pretty easily who was quick and who was slow at Route 88 because if you had rock chips all over the front of your car, that was probably the dead giveaway. Yes, it was. I mean, it's, you didn't go there very often. You know, once or twice there, that was it. But if you had a fast car, you went back. If you had a slow car, you didn't go back, to be truthful. And there were a few more drag strips that are no longer around you mentioned. You mentioned Lake Geneva. You mentioned the uh, Peoria Airfield. And another one that you do see photos float around once in a while from, and you were at this track, the Indoor Chicago Amphitheater Drag Races. Uh, you know, we've seen pictures of it, some pretty terrifying, the way cars would actually uh, race out the doors with just hay bales stacked up around them. But, you know, I can only imagine that the sights 
and then, then the smell and the sound of indoor drag racing. What do you remember from that, Lee? It was cold inside. It was colder inside than it was outside, and the stink was just awful, just awful. But to see these cars go down, and, they, you know, well, one of them is shake, rattle, and run. And I remember that car going through there, and Beswick was there also, going through the pillars. And they had to go through the pillars, you know. <laughs> if they got sideways or anything, they'd, they would hit the pillars. But then they shortened it up because they thought they could go through the doors, which they had to. But they had to shorten the track up because it's too long. And I can't remember the exact distance it was, but it was noisy and smell. Holy mackerel. It was unbelievable. I cannot tell you. It was an experience that I, you know, I'm happy I went to it. It was the first one they had. It was the first one they ever had. Well, Lee, you've you've had this car for so long. Uh, the car really has been with you for just about the entire length of your marriage. And I know that the car also had a special meaning to you and your son. Uh, just tell us what what the sport of drag racing, as well as this car, have meant to you and your entire family, Lee. Well, let's see. I got something to tell you. This one, my wife said one time, said that was my first love, and she, I'd have probably made more attention to her if she'd had a positive tracker in. The car has been just part of my life. You know, it's uh, it's just part of my life. You know, I, I just uh, I do all the work. When our son was alive, he fabricated a few pieces for us, like putting the, the rear end underneath it. There's this cooling system for a fan that we put on. We made some brackets for the generator, and uh, we got a, a generator that we put on that uh, if you went too fast, the fan blades straightened out. Well, he took a piece of coat hanger, welded on the the blades of the pulley, and that stopped the blades from straightening out and tearing up the belts as, you know, as such when you hit like 7,000 RPM. Uh, it was just part of our life. I mean, uh, we haven't done much to it other than keeping it the way it is. In fact, I'm living in the past. My wife says I'm living in the past. I'm not just nostalgia. I'm vintage. I'm ancient, okay? Everybody else is surpassing but that's one thing I have to do say when the meltdown drags, the two Hoopmeyer brothers came to me and gave me a, a I don't know if it's an award or not, but it was a piston welded to a rod on a plate and it had nonconformist. <laughs> I called my wife that day to tell her she wanted to know how the car was running because I had some difficulty. And I called her and I told her I got this. She says, Boy, that fits you to a T. That's nonconformist. That's right. Well, and I think that's what we love about it, and we love about you, Lee. Just uh, unique, the distinction, and uh, the stories that you have to tell. You know, this is something that, that we treasure. And uh, looking back on it all, did you realize back then the stories that you would have to tell later? And did you think that, you know, going back all the way as far back as we're going with these stories, that you know, anybody would be asking you 55 years later what it was like? No, I didn't. But I have one more for you, Randy. Uh-huh. We had a 57 Chevy wagon. I used to flat tow with this wagon. We were to Route 66. And, uh, right after they opened sometime, we flat towed all the way there. We flat towed all the way around. And in 2002, I don't know why, but we decided to take 
and buy a trailer. And my wife told me, if I ever bought an enclosed trailer, it better have a toilet, bed, and running water, because that's where I'd live. Well, we ended up buying an enclosed trailer. And on the outside of the trailer, it is lettered. It says, it's about time. And when I traveled into Cordova one time, I was one of the last ones. I was probably the last ones ever to flat toe into Cordova. Uh-huh. And when I went to pay and they said, well, where's the car at? I said, it's in the trailer. The officials came out and the ladies at the uh, booths came out and they looked. They said, oh, my God. It's true. It's about time we've got an enclosed trailer. And I made the trailer fit for the car. I did a lot of things in the car, in the trailer, to make it so I can load it and unload it myself with no difficulties at all. But I would not change over. Yeah, we were on the ground floor drag racing when it came out. And I'm happy we were, you know. I mean, uh, all these guys we talked to, you know, at uh, Arms and Talk, Walker and Springman and you know, I just can't tell you. Even when these guys were alive, we talked about it. You know, we were on the ground floor of drag racing. The speed was the main thing that we were all interested in. And to go fast, that was our whole main objective, to go fast. We didn't care how, what, where, or what. Well, it is so crucially important that we talk to people like yourself and really document the history of the sport and really tell these stories that need to be told. And we have to thank you, Lee, for... Uh, you and everybody in your generation for being the, the pioneers of the sport and really laying the groundwork for the things that, uh, frankly, we all take for granted. Just, just things as simple as opening up a, a mail-order catalog or going onto a website and finding the parts and pieces you need for a car. You know, it just didn't exist back then, and just the evolution of everything from, from that point forward. Uh, we appreciate you, Lee. We appreciate you uh, coming out to the track for the Glory Days race. We look forward to having you. And are there any uh, last parting words you'd like to share with us before we wrap up this Fire and Dragway podcast? I'll tell you what, Randy, you just brought up about these magazines, these parts houses. We didn't give anything back then to get, you know, to see these pieces advertised. The earliest ones we can remember is Honest Charlie Speed Shop in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that was one that, you know, oh, man, we got that catalog there and the pieces. Oh, we were just in seventh heaven. In fact, I still have one of the original catalogs from Honest Charlie in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But nowadays, you can buy whatever you want from these parts. It weren't the, they weren't available to us back then. We had what we could use. We, you know, anything we could make it go faster. In fact, sometimes they used airplane fuel in the cars to make it go a little bit faster. That was how it came. But thank you, Randy. Appreciate this uh, interview. And, yeah, we'll be there for the glory days again. We always enjoyed going to Byron. they got a nice track. You're always welcome. They always thank you when coming into the track. And I can't tell you, it really makes a difference that they say thank you, you know. And that's, you know, that's one of the nicest things. They're, everybody's friendly and, you know, it's it's a good track. I just thank you very much, and to BJ also, greatly appreciate it. Thank you again, Randy. Well, we appreciate it, Lee, and we can't wait to see you back out at the track July this year. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Bye.
Thank you for listening, and if you want to see Lee Bardo and his time capsule of a 57 Chevy, as well as hundreds of other vintage drag cars, then make sure you're at Byron Dragway July 17th, 18th, and 19th of 2020 for the Glory Days Vintage Drag Race Car Show and Swap Meet. Also, another special thank you to the Hot Rod Shop being the presenting sponsor of today's episode. If you want to join our growing list of sponsors and also be featured on future episodes of the Byron Dragway podcast, the Byron Dragway TV live streams, and so much more, then make sure you head over to byrondragway.com slash advertising to get started. Thank you, and we will see you at the track.